Washington, D.C., 2017. D.C. Delegate Eleanor Holmes Norton introduces a bill to remove Confederate General Albert Pike from his 17-foot-tall statue perch in our nation's capital. This bill is reintroduced in 2019, but on Juneteenth, 2020, protesters decided not to wait any longer. Down goes Pike. This is a history podcast. Last time we discussed the rewriting of Christopher Columbus's history to fit our national story. Today we're having a conversation on Albert Pike, who, like Christopher Columbus, was a terrible person who winds up with an excellent statue standing for over a hundred years in our nation's capital. Dealing with sometimes the uncomfortable and always the historical, my name is Marcus and this is Ozymandias. this thing, who is the guy, what was happening when it was put up, and how did it come down? Let's start. We're looking at 17 feet tall with a base that is 17 feet wide. The sculpture itself is made of solid bronze. The base, 17 feet wide, is a granite base. It's one of the only outdoor sculptures that is completely made of bronze in all of Washington, D.C., or it was. I think the location of this behemoth is pretty interesting to think about. So this is Judiciary Square in Washington, D.C. The grand opening of this thing in Judiciary Square was on October 23rd, 1901. Uh, the statue itself was put up and honored, and we'll get to this later in just a moment in the conversation, just 30 days after President William McKinley was assassinated. Before we get into the story and some of the history on William McKinley and Teddy Roosevelt and the transition of presidential power and kind of this idea of keeping an eye on what monuments are going up, when the Oval Office is in turmoil, something that perhaps is apropos for our current time, let's take a minute and stop and look at this thing. Albert Pike, just give him a search on your phone, however you're listening, and if you're not able to, I'll do my best to describe this, but you look at this guy and immediately the first thought in your mind is, wow, this is an overweight, Kind of, open coat, open button, buttons popping out, hand on a book, big old beard. You are immediately getting some Confederacy vibes from this monument, or at least I am. So who is Albert Pike? What's this guy up to? Let's, bear with me a little bit as we go back to the Civil War. We are in the middle of the great divide of our nation, and Albert Pike is on the side of the Confederacy. He's not a top general. He's not a medium general. He is a Western theater liaison to the Native American people 
who is tasked with manipulating them into fighting on the Confederacy side against the Union. So this great General Albert Pike is really more like a Western theater outcast. He convinces and leads a number of Native American tribes into battle on behalf of the Southern cause, losing really badly in 1862 at the Battle of Pea Ridge. The Battle of Pea Ridge is pretty notable, although just a small blemish in your history books when you're thinking about the Civil War, but the Battle of Pea Ridge is pretty notable when you're thinking about who is Albert Pike because leading up to the battle, not only was he facing charges from the Confederacy of misappropriating funds, but during the battle and after the battle's events, he allowed his troops to scalp Union prisoners of war, scalping his American brothers in the Civil War, the Union Army. <laughs> Unbelievable history from this guy who goes on to be on this 17-foot-tall monument in Washington, D.C. just a few years later. Eventually, Pike is arrested by the Confederacy and charged with treason. Later, within that same year of 1862, he is tried for the same crime by the United States, the Union, making Pike the only accused traitor in the eyes of both Union and Confederacy governments. Let that sink in for a second. This guy who we put on the pedestal was historically, at the time, the biggest traitor in American history a betrayer of his own from both sides. The Confederates in the end do allow Pike to return from his scalping exile, and Andrew Johnson does give him a pardon. After the war, after the Civil War, Pike spends his time in Tennessee, where historians have a tricky time putting this on the thumb on the pulse, but a long time standing allegation is that he was instrumental in working with the Ku Klux Klan and helping them form their rituals. And I, I do need to say, though, hard evidence does not exist that shows that he instituted these rituals. From what we see online and in his history, it does look like this time period between the Civil War and between him going to Washington, D.C., the time that he spends in Tennessee, we do know that he is a major contributor to the Know Nothing Party. Know Nothing Party. So the way to kind of wrap your minds around that is the word nativist. So if you're thinking like Gangs of New York, Daniel Day-Lewis, um, uh, his character with the missing eye, the kind of nativist, kind of very pro-racial uh, superiority, very pro American, like first or second generations, but of course, uh, uh, not uh, uh, favorable for immigrants coming into to the country like they did one generation prior. That is the kind of PG version of the Tennessee's version of that party, the Know Nothing Party, which Pike was instrumental in leading. This Southern man of, of kind of secrets restarts his life in Washington, D.C., but as a Freemason, a Freemason where he was so influential, he was elected as the sovereign grand commander, 
What type of secrets was General Pike responsible for? What was the secret? A treasure. A treasure beyond all imagining. I think it's safe to assume, based on what we know about uh, General Pike thus far, he's not your Nicolas Cage version of Freemasons. We'll have to come back to Freemasons on another episode, but absolutely the Freemason connection here and his election to the final position, it gives you a little bit of a, oh yeah, he was kind of known for rituals and he was kind of known for writing and publishing kind of doctrines and, and he was rumored to be involved with the Ku Klux Klan in similar ways. Well, flashing forward to you know chapter three of his life, he is fully on a public figure of the Freemasons. He's publishing books, he's publishing speeches, he is the, he is the Steve Bannon of the Freemasons of his day. Here's a quote from, from Pike talking about some of the rituals that, that he was implementing. Masonry is not made for cold souls and narrow minds that do not comprehend its lofty mission and sublime apostolate. Well, Pike ends up, you know, passing away and he is fully supported by the Scottish Rite, a, a sect or a, a, a part of the Freemason overall infrastructure, and he's so highly regarded, he's actually laid to rest and buried inside of a Freemason temple within DC itself. So that's that's our guy. That's that's our that's our guy. People talk about him, and when you Google him, you're gonna see he was a scholar. He was well spoken. He was an articulate man of antebellum. He was influential, but it's kind of hard to find out. What did he do? Like he was a, he was an attorney. He represented some uh, uh, Native American tribes in their relationship and, and fight uh, uh, against the Union. He was involved in the Confederacy. He he is loosely associated with some rumors, some dark rumors from Tennessee. And then he plugs himself into the Washington D.C. aristocracy and ends up with the one of the most prominent statues in all of our nation's capital. Something doesn't make sense with this guy. So here we are in 1901, and Italian-American Gaetano Trentanove is unveiling this statue. What happened? What? What? <laughs> what in the heck is happening? It's just, it's flabbergasting when, when you're going through these stories, and you see the transition in the history books, you turn the page, and boom. You got an all-time famous Italian-American uh, artist who's turning you into a bronze mural. What else is happening in 1901 that can help us understand why? Well, the stock market crashes for the first time in U.S. history. Michigan school teacher Annie Taylor goes down the Niagara Falls in a barrel and survives. A little bit of a slow time in American history if Annie Taylor and and the barrel is popping up in, in, in your history books on the timeline. Um, how about a little bit more of a major event? September 6th, American anarchist Leon Sloskos shoots President William McKinley at the Pan American Exposition in Buffalo, New York. President William McKinley, 
president of the United States, William McKinley, dies from this gunshot wound eight days later. On September 14th, Vice President Theodore Roosevelt becomes the 26th president of the United States. There is presidential, presidential turmoil at the top. There is an assassination, and within eight days, a new president is in the Oval Office. And in one month's time, General Pike's statue is unveiled. At 2 p.m., members from the Grand Lodge of the Masons of the District of Columbia, led by Grand Master Harry Standiford, marched from the Masonic Temple at 9th and F Street down to the House of the Temple where they were joined with thousands of other Masons taking part in a parade honoring our guy Pikey. Uh, I am here to represent the Supreme Council and in its name to present the government of the United States this statue. It will long stand as a loving tribute from his brethren of the ancient and accepted Scottish rite of Freemasonry. That's the Grand Master Harry Standiford kind of commemorating this moment. We've got music playing. We've got a band. We've got a benediction that's being given. There's a ceremony conclusion. Throughout the ceremony, everyone's talking about Pike as a kind poet, a man of elegant words, and to be fair, there were a few references to his service as a Confederate general, but this was a Freemason celebration that one of their own was immortalized in the city that, of course, is so rich in Freemason history. Earlier in the year of 1901, Teddy Roosevelt knocked on the door of the temple to become a Freemason. He was initiated on January 2nd, 1901, in Oyster Bay, New York. After taking office as Vice President of the United States in March of that year, quote-unquote, Brother Roosevelt was passed to the degree of Fellowcraft on March 27th and raised to the degree of Master Mason on April 24th. Only five months later, Brother Roosevelt became President of the United States at the age of 42, after the untimely death by assassination of President McKinley in September of 1901. So if you're thinking about 1901, Roosevelt going from newly initiated to President of the United States, President of the United States within a month, a OG founding member of that Masonic Lodge now is enshrined in copper and in public forum with a Freemason parade throughout the streets of the city, it absolutely, absolutely reeks of (laughs) collaboration, if not collusion. But of course, there are things that are, as a historical podcast, delving into the realm of conspiracy to connect those dots. But I think the timeline itself from this relationship to the assassination of William McKinley to Teddy Roosevelt taking office is something that we cannot overlook in this conversation. And in this conversation, one thing that that is true is the role of a educated populace in a time of turmoil, in a time of the top seat being assassinated or being unstable instability at the top leading to a window in time for a group 
for really what they are, a, a, a special interest collective to push their interest into the American story, into the American spirit by rebranding one of their own and placing that in our national ethos for years to come. Now it's to a place in 2020 where people are feeling like they're on the left or feeling like they're on the right. Should I support the destruction of the statue? Should I be in defense of history and this individual's remaining in place? Well, I want to take a step and just give a huge shout out to the leadership team of Washington, D.C. in 2020 and, and prior. D.C. Delegate Eleanor Holmes Norton, if you, you know, again, coming back to Eleanor Holmes Norton, if you remember Stephen Colbert's uh, two for two on episodes mentioning Stephen Colbert, this time actually in allusion to uh, his show, where the premise of one of his skits was to go around district by district by district, better know your district. It's one of the most lasting kind of political satire segments that that I can remember, and I'm sure it's something that that my listeners are able to remember as well. From Delegate Eleanor Holmes Norton's multiple efforts, multiple years worth of trying to get rid of this bill, to now in 2020, Mayor Muriel Bowser, Attorney General Carl Racine, more than half of the D.C. Council, Ward 2, Councilmember Jack Evans, he even went as far as finding and, and getting the funds for a, a crane operator for safe removal to help with the protesters. Uh, what I see in this story is not the, is General Pike the person who should be removed or not? I think the story here is actually, why was this statue ever allowed to be put into place? And what I want to bring kind of as a closing comment and closing thought in this story is when the local community and local protests movement aligns with the elected officials and aligns with a long-standing historical fight to remove this statue, what I want to come back to is just really hone in on the lesson that this Albert Pike memorial and his the destruction of this statue, what this teaches us is It's in times of turmoil at the top when things are inserted that change the national ethos that we have to be most vigilant about. It's when there's turmoil at the top where we are all in a panic and we are all in mourning that we take our eyes off of what's happening in front of us and there's a Freemason ceremony and a parade putting their guy in copper on top of a granite mount for a hundred years to then sit in Judiciary Square. I don't think a convicted man of treason from both the Confederacy and from the Union, the traitor of both sides, sitting in Judiciary Square would have ever been possible had this not been snuck through in a time of national mourning. Thinking about our own time and in 2020 right now today, I have to applaud the collective effort the collaboration and the just general sense of it is time. But what we can't do in this story is to lose the message of vigilance when there's turmoil at the top. As we do on this pod, we'd like to say adios to General Pike 
from our friend Percy Shelley. Let's dive right in to Ozymandias. My name is Ozymandias, King of Kings. Look on my works, ye mighty, and despair. Nothing beside remains. Round the decay of that colossal wreck, boundless and bare, the lone and level sands stretch far away. This is Ozymandias. See you on the next one.